0: Well, the rest of you guys again, how we doing everybody good yeah. amen amen um, this morning uh, we 're talking about miracles and, and we 're talking about the uh, the miracle worker and and you know when I, when, I, when I read this text and I think about miracles it it, it, it kind of reminds me of this this recent video that was um, that was surfacing through the social media world and it was a Video of two um, two young teenagers, teenage boys, and they were being videotaped in front of a uh, apparatus, otherwise known as a rotary phone. Some of you guys don't even know what that is, but it was a device that you that you put your finger in. It's it's the phones the phones of old. You put you put your finger in the phone where the number is, and and then you. Then you dial the the you're using your finger you dial that thing all the way until it hits like this little catch then you pick your finger back out and then it swings back over and then you put your finger back in the uh, in the in the device again and and then you just keep doing that and it takes roughly about two hours and and then and then finally somebody you know, the phone starts ringing right and so and so these 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 poor teenage boys had this phone in front of them and they were trying to figure out okay, what do I do with this? Do I just put my finger in there and, and, and is it going to detect it and then it's going to know what number I want to dial? How does this work? And it took them a while to realize they were actually supposed to put their finger in there and then use their finger to move it all the way ra- around to the catch. And and, and and they just had this look on their face like, what good is this? You know, what, what do we do with this? Why, why would anybody even use this, right? And... and and in some ways, that's kind of how we approach text with miracles, right? Some of us read these texts and we're just like, okay, none of us are doing that, so let's just move on to chapter 10, right? What are we gonna do in chapter nine? These guys perform miracles, God is great. Okay, next chapter, right? But I think there's way more for us to learn as we work through these texts. Number one, because I I don't want you to, I don't want you to get so callous to God working in the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and, and you not seeing it as a normative, normative way of life so much that you think it's not happening. Okay. All right. So I don't want to, I don't want you to just be so, so kind of naturalistic about the way the world works that you don't even think God can move in this regard. All right. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that even when God isn't moving in what you would consider to be miraculous ways, he's still moving through works. And I think there is something much or a lot for us to grab in the idea of what is God doing through works, okay? And so that's what what we want to fix our attention this morning is this idea that what is God teaching us through these miraculous gospel-centered works, The first thing I think he's teaching us is that miraculous gospel works are performed through Jesus. When you look at chapter 9, verse 32, it begins by saying, Peter went here and there among them all, and he came down also to the saints who lived at Leda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Peter's first stop is in the city of Leda. It's about 25 miles, 25 to 30 miles roughly northwest of his home, his hometown, Jerusalem. Now, distance wise, for the average Vicksburger, it would be like traveling up 61 north and and get to Valley Park. Some of y'all don't even know where Valley Park is, and that's okay. You would miss it if you drove by it anyway. But it appears that the gospel had already infiltrated the town of Leda by the time Peter gets there, because Luke mentions that Peter is going there to, to visit the saints that are gathered there. And one of those saints is a man who has been confined to his bed for eight years due to paralysis. For those of us who have been, who have seen a loved one or friend battle with paralysis or battle um, uh, with a debilitating infirmity such as that, the physical is a struggle. We certainly have no doubts about that. But it is not the only struggle. The longer the condition remains, the stronger the mental struggle becomes. The battle with worth. The battle with doubt. Why has God made me like this? This man has been battling this condition for eight years before Peter shows up to his town. And when Peter shows up, as he's healing this man, he leaves no room for confusion regarding the source of this healing. Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you the supernatural power at work in Peter leading to the healing of this man is not his power to claim it is Jesus Christ whenever you have miracle healers out there and you watch TV and they're and they're doing more pointing to themselves than they are to Jesus number one you should doubt what they're doing should doubt whether or not even miracles are taking place And you should certainly doubt whether they're being done in the name of Jesus. Because those that are truly moving and operating in in representation of Jesus Christ are not looking to rob credit from Jesus Christ. This man says that Jesus Christ heals you. And while it may be easy to clearly see this in this example, this miracle, we must carry the same understanding and humility into all good works that are performed. Miraculous or otherwise. See, see, when we perform works in Jesus, they are, or by, or rather for Jesus, they are works in Jesus. Peter is saying, I am not the miracle worker. Christ is. Jesus Christ is the true miracle worker here. Paul makes a similar statement when he he is discussing his own ministry in Colossians chapter 1. And as he's dealing with his own ministry, he talks about his proclamation, the the fact that he proclaims Jesus in Colossians 1, chapter 28, or chapter 1, verse 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Listen, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy. With all his energy, the energy is his, that he powerfully works within me. I proclaim, but I proclaim with the energy that he gives me. I don't proclaim with my own. He says it even in Philippians chapter 2 when he's discussing the ideal of salvation. He says in chapter 2 of Philippians verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Then he says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Talking about the process of sanctification, working out our salvation. But then he says this, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he says, work out your own salvation, but it's God who is both giving you the will to work and it's God who's giving you the energy and the strength to work. Does that make sense? So it's not just miraculous works where we say, Jesus Christ heals you, but it's all our works that we say, Jesus Christ is empowering us and moving in us in order to do the work that we're doing. Now, what does that mean for us? It means means a couple of things, two things rather. One, less pressure, more prayer. The false notion that all of our success and failure to serve Jesus rest in our hands can oftentimes literally paralyze us from working. Does that make sense? But it is Christ who is working in us, not simply us working for Christ. We are working for Christ as he works in us. We don't have to carry the pressure of being good enough or qualified enough. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't prepare well. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that you don't prepare well in your working. God's working doesn't necessarily mean or doesn't necessarily have to be outside of your preparation. In fact, we can prepare with less pressure because we know that it is God who is working in us. However, what it does mean is that our prayer or our preparation should be coupled with prayer. Because why? It is God who is working in us, meaning we must depend on whom in order to work? God. Because it is God who is working in our works and thus it is God who we need to step in for us to be successful. And this leads to the second way that this knowledge of God being active in our working should change us or should inform us. First way, less pressure, more prayer. Second way, less arrogance, more humility. So even on my best days as a Christian, it is not based on my power. It is not based on my intellect. It's not based on my boldness. It's not based on my competency. It's not based on my righteousness. It is first and foremost, the life that I live in God, even on my best days, is based first and foremost on the God working mightily in me. You're tracking with that. And this should leave us less arrogant about our working and more humble about the fact that we have been given privilege to have the God of the universe working in us. This should leave us grateful that we even have good works to give. It should leave us humbled that we can perform those works in us by his grace, whatever those works may be. So Peter is showing us that miraculous works are performed through Christ. But he's also showing us that miraculous works are performed on behalf of Jesus. When you look at verse 36 through 40, there was a man in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha. I'm sorry, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Leda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. See, after after the healing in Leda, Peter is invited to Joppa to pray for a woman who is present. Now, Joppa is about another 28 miles northwest. And so again, for the Vicksburgers in the room, imagine that you drove up. To, to Valley there, and, and, and then you decided while you were there and, and, and you were hanging out with Peter and Peter healed somebody in this area in Valley Park, somebody comes into the house that you guys had gathered and they say, hey, Peter, we need you in Rolling Fork. Hurry up. And so you guys jump in the car and you, and you go to Rolling Fork and, and, and there they immediately pull you in to the house. Now, notice that there is a clear expectation from these people for God to move. And because this woman, is, this, this woman appears to be deeply loved, there is a clear desire for God to move. There is a desire and an expectation for God To move, They clean her as they customarily do, but then they lay her in the upper room with the expectation that maybe if Peter can get here in time, she can be healed. She can rise from the grave. And that's exactly what happens. How often are we going about the mission of God with both love for the people we desire to see God move on behalf of and expectation for the God that we desire to see move in and for those people? often do we go about our our mission that God has given us with the love for the people and the expectation for God to move amongst the people? How can we we even be surprised when God doesn't move if we aren't even expecting him to move when we go? How can we be surprised if, if God doesn't move if we don't even put ourselves in position for him to move? Oftentimes, we're praying prayers for God to move in our families and for God to move in our neighborhoods and for God to move in our city without even engaging our families and without even engaging our neighborhoods and without even engaging our city. Many of us are praying for God's harvest in our lives and in our homes and in our cities without planting any seeds. We're casting no seed. We're just praying for something to be different. I mean, just take for example, our own children. As you pray prayers of salvation for your children, ask yourself what questions or rather what seeds Of expectation, am I planting for God to use in answering those prayers? Am I having gospel conversations with my children as I pray for their salvation, or am I just kind of hoping God will do it in the midst of my silence? Am regularly walking out? this relationship that I have with Jesus as I am calling out to God for the salvation of my children. Or when they look at me, they see literally no difference between me and the world. I'm expecting harvest without casting seed. These people had an expectation that God would move, and so they were preparing an expectation for him to move. Do you understand that? And it's that expectation, it's that preparation, it's that love that's present when Peter arrives. And we see in in verse 40, it says, Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. See, a very interesting observation is found in the original languages that Peter would have spoken in bringing Tabitha back to life. We see Peter use the exact same phrase as Jesus does when he calls the 12-year-old child back to life. And the 12-year-old child that Jesus calls back to life in Luke's gospel, he says, child, arise, and, the child, and basically it's t- uh, Talitha Kumi. But here, he basically changes one word or ch- changes one letter, Tabitha. Kumi. Definitely not a random detail that Luke throws in here. Luke is going out of his way to share that name because remember, we talk, we talk about Tabitha and, and Luke says that Tabitha, otherwise name is Dorcas, right? And then he goes through the text and he highlights that her name is Dorcas again. And then he moves from Dorcas when Peter gets there to Tabitha. And so he wants to remind his readers, those that have read his gospel, the the gospel that he wrote, and those that are reading this, this book in Acts, he wants to show the connection between Jesus and his apostles. It's as if Luke is sharing, reminding us that Peter is, in fact, not his own spokesperson. But he is a representative of Christ. Just a small, fine detail, but it's an important detail. See, we bring our good works as, or we, we perform our good works as representatives of Jesus. We are his hands and we are his feet in the world. The world's most common and consistent introduction to Jesus is through his church. The Bible tells us in the the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or in the letter that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us in verse 20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Jesus to be reconciled to God. Now, of course, we are not perfect ambassadors. And so it is vital that we don't let people stop on us, but that we point them to Jesus. But it does not make us any less representatives of Jesus. See, the question still must be asked, what does the world see and say about Jesus when they watch and observe you in the world? Do your works and do your actions speak favorably about your Savior? Does your attitude at work, does your attitude at home, Is your attitude in public? Are you one of these obnoxious people at restaurants that waiters hide from? What does it say about you? But not even about you. What does it say about Jesus when they look at you? What does your love of neighbor proclaim to the world about Jesus? What do your words proclaim to the world about Jesus? one of the things they urge you to do is never to talk about politics behind the pulpit. So I'm going to talk about politics behind the pulpit. Not much, though. Not much. Not much. But when you look at the current climate of politics, I was sharing, um, actually one of my my brothers here in the church, um, won't self-incriminate him because I don't know if he wants to talk about politics with y'all, but we were discussing our disgust with the current political climate. It's just like... Who? What are we doing up there, right? What's going on? Seriously. Not even one side. What's just going on? Both sides. Everybody. What's going on up there? But, but, but here's an interesting dynamic about politics. We call those people up there representatives. They're actually kind of supposed to be representing us. But then, you know, obviously all sorts of things happen, special interests, and people start getting pulled from one side to the next, and you end up having this group of people that are kind of living day to day. Many of you are in the room, and you're like, I don't think these people represent me at all. I don't know who represents me up there. They're called representatives, but they're representing a certain number of special interests on both sides, and that group is a lot smaller than the mass that they're supposed to be representing, right? Right? And so, it's, what's interesting is that they're called representatives, but at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, who are they representing? Because their actions don't reflect the people that, that have put them in office. Who are you representing? Do your actions reflect the God that has given you the office of ambassador? You know, we can complain about the politics, right? They're so inconsistent. But what about us? Who are we representing? People see Jesus? What do people say? I don't know who that guy's representing. I'm looking, at, I'm, lo- I'm looking at this Bible that, you know, they're supposed to be following, and I, I, I don't know, maybe, I, maybe, maybe that looks like Jesus. I'm not sure. I used to listen to this group called Cross Movie. It's a Christian hip hop group. For those of you all, yes, they they do exist. And there there was one lyric in a song, and the song song that I loved, and and, and it was on an album called House of Representatives. And And the lyric was simple If you love them, you got to represent them well. Our love for Jesus should shape our desire to rep him well in the world. Peter's good works are performed in his official capacity as ambassador, which leads to my next point. Mir- miraculous gospel works are performed for the glory of Jesus. Because Peter's works are performed in his official capacity as ambassador, they end up pointing people to Jesus. Miracles being worked in the name of Christ Only reach their peak fulfillment when they lead to the salvation of those who are witnessing the miracles. Good works that are performed in Christ reach their peak fulfillment when they lead to the salvation of those who are uh, observing the good works. We see this happen in Leda in chapter, in chapter nine, verse 35. We see it happen in Leda. We, when Anna, when, when, when Aeneas is healed of his long-term illness, the scripture says they turn to the Lord. And in verse 42, in the city of Joppa, when Tabitha is resurrected from the grave, we see again the people of the city turn to Christ and choose him by faith. Our works are meant to be springboards to the gospel. Jesus Christ didn't die to simply help people get by in this life. He died for them so that they might receive eternal life. Now, that doesn't dampen your commitment to good works, because oftentimes that happens, doesn't it? I think my mic is going back and forth. Apologies. But it doesn't dampen your commitment to good works. In other words, you know, sometimes what ends up happening is we say, well, Jesus Christ ultimately died for salvation. So don't concern yourself with good works. Just preach the gospel. But the gospel includes good works. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works or that they may see your preaching on Sunday morning, the gospel. No, it doesn't say that. It says that they may see your good works and glorify God in heaven. So it is reflective of people that believe the gospel to actually work as if they believe the gospel. So it's the ideal here that that it's not dampening your commitment to good works. It's just informing it. Does that make sense? Why you work. Your works are intended to point people to Jesus, never just stop on the work itself. So as you think about that, ask yourself the question, how are you seizing moments or using moments or leveraging moments? How how are you leveraging acts of goodness, grace, mercy, righteousness to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people around you? How are you leveraging those acts to speak about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior? The fact that Jesus Christ came for sinners, the fact that Jesus Christ came for imperfect people, died on a cross, and that his righteousness was shared with the, with, with the world, that, his, that, our right, that our unrighteousness became righteousness from him. And that and that he rose from the grave demonstrating all power in his hand to save us, and that there is an eternity awaiting us. There is a new heaven, there is a new earth, that this is not the end, we're going back to God's design. How are you how are you using how are you using the works? How are you using the good acts that you're sharing that you're doing for your neighbor? How are you using the, the good acts that you are doing through your missional communities? How are you using the good acts that you are doing for y- young children around your neighborhood to point them to Jesus? Because that's where your works have their ultimate fulfillment. Does that make sense? Amen. Lastly, miraculous gospel works are performed as a sign that Christ reigns over death. One of the things that you learn in biblical studies is, the, is that experience our understanding of how we read the scriptures. And if you aren't aware of that, if you aren't aware that your experience is shaping how you read the scriptures, that can be a very, very, very bad thing. One example just being how you fix your attention on one sin of the Bible and harshly judge people that are struggling with that particular sin because it's not your sin. But then... At the same time, you completely gloss over another sin in the Bible because it is your sin or it's your or it's the sin of someone close to you. And so you ignore it or you try to you try to excuse it or act like it's not what Jesus was intended to say. See, that's your experience shaping how you interpret and read the scriptures, right? If you watch closely, you see this all the time in our culture. The way we set morality is that we subject our experience to the moral standards. And so if these things don't bother us or these things aren't holding us bound or we're not fighting with these things, right, then when other people are doing it, we have harsh condemnation for those people. But but the things that we do struggle with, whether it be people that are close to us, whether it be people that are, are, are from our historic past, or whether it be even us, the things that we do struggle with, Hey, man, give them some grace, right? Don't make this such a big deal. You tracking with that? Experience shaping the way we read Scripture. But if you read Scripture in a healthy way, or rather if you approach Scripture with the idea that your experience is shaping it, then you can find some healthy ways of seeing Scripture. And the reason I'm telling you guys that is because the Lord granted me one of those this week as I was studying the thing that stood out to me in this text was Tabitha's death. It says in verse 36, now there, was a, there, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, and she was full of good works and acts of charity. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas Made while she was with them. Think about this. This woman who was serving her God through her charitable love for people. She was not just a disciple in words, she was a disciple in deed. Following Christ not just in doctrine, but following him in practice. The Lord commands us to be an extended hand to those in need. And here we see Tabitha being just that. She is a, an extended hand to people in need. The women gathered around her deceased body, weeping at her loss. They loved her so much because of her generosity. They were grieving her loss by highlighting her charity and her good works that she was made known for. They were grieving her loss by showing Peter the the garments that she made for them. Talking about, this was a good woman. And so my experience immediately drew my attention to this this particular moment in the text, And and it led me to ask this question. Why does tragedy strike the people that are laying down their lives so much for Jesus? You see, the experience that shapes my reading of this text is the death of my own father and the death of my own sister and the death of my best friend, all of which were servants of Jesus at the time of their death, rich with good works, far more generous than I am, far more compassionate than I am, far more hospitable than I am. And so as I read this narrative of the widows showing their garments, it reminded me of all the people who have come to me through the years, through through the last 10 years or so, or rather the last eight years or so, and are still coming to me declaring their appreciation for the role that my father played in their life. People still literally are telling me that God used him in ways that they that they don't even know where they would be without him. It's like the version of Tabitha's tunics and garments where people are going up to Peter and showing, showing Peter the clothes that she made for them. And yet, like Tabitha, my dad grew ill and my dad died. My sister, she grew ill and she died. And, and so it's just the way I see the world now. I, when I look at the text, I can't ignore that. I can't help but ask the question, why does tragedy strike people laying down their lives for Jesus? Maybe some of you have similar testimonies in this room, where literally some of the people that were most faithful to Jesus in your life were the ones to see death or illness first. But then the other question that came to my mind in reading Tabitha's story was this. Why couldn't other people be raised from the dead like Tabitha? Why couldn't other people be healed like Tabitha? Why didn't God answer the hours of prayers that were prayed in the hospitals around this world? Or why doesn't God answer the hours of prayers that are prayed uh, um, uh, over, over the deceased that lay in rest? And you, and you may know, you, you, you know maybe the answer was because there wasn't enough. I'm sorry, you may think that the answer was maybe there wasn't enough faith or maybe folks didn't pray long enough or, or, or something like that. But it's not likely. That's not likely to answer. You know what's more likely? Is that the time that they had to live for Christ in this life and serve him in sharing the gospel and the edification and edifying the church and and loving their neighbor through good works, that time was up. And Tabitha's was not. It's not really that hard when you think about it. It's hard to accept. See, just a few weeks ago, we read about another great man of God. In Acts chapter 6, we read about a man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen was a man full of the Spirit. Stephen was a man full of grace. Stephen was a man full of power. And he was performing mighty acts and miracles for God in the name of Jesus. And he was boldly proclaiming the gospel when he was taken to the outskirts of the city. And he was stoned to death. And left to die. Now the question we ask is, is there not enough faith for Stephen? Was there not enough faith for Stephen? I think we can say he had plenty of faith. He's performing miracles and all sorts of things. And so did some people pray more for Stephen or pray more for Tabitha than they did for Stephen? And the answer is probably not likely. What is likely is that his time to live for Christ in this life and serve him through sharing the gospel, edifying the church, and loving his neighbors around him through good works was up. And so what this does is it brings us to a very hard, hard issue, doesn't it? And I need to, I need to allow the spirit to do work on you right now as we're talking about this. Because I know some of you are wounded from losses. And you've asked yourself millions of times, what is God doing? Why did God take this person and not that person? Why do we think there, why, let, let, me, let me ask you this question. Why do you think that there is something wrong with that answer? See, I'm not saying that you don't cry because we're going to cry. And I'm not saying that you don't grieve because you're supposed to grieve. I'm asking you, why do you think there is something inherently wrong with that answer? That some people die because God's most faithful servants die, sometimes prematurely, while others don't die because their purpose hasn't been fulfilled yet and they're still more for them to do in this life? Why do you think you struggle with that answer? Here's my answer, as I struggle with it. For me, it's a matter of faith. See, I believe part of the struggle in me is that we still aren't convinced, as maybe we've let on, that something better awaits us on the other side of this life. See, I believe we still struggle at times to say with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, I still think I still think we struggle and to say along with Paul in Philippians chapter one that for to me, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to is to depart and be with Christ. Listen to him, for that is far better. I think a lot of us still struggle with that. The reality that to be with Christ is actually better than being here. The problem is not with how God is handling the people that he chooses to take. The problem is with how his people that remain sometimes struggle to hold on to the promises that they're in a better place. You see, Tabitha is raised, but that is not where the ultimate hope lies in this story. See, some of us look at it and we say, Tabitha was raised, why can't? Why can't my dad be raised? Why can't my sister be raised? Or why can't my friend or my brother or my uncle or whoever? Tabitha was raised and Jesus raised that 12-year-old girl and Jesus raised Lazarus out of the grave in John chapter 11, but guess what? Every single one of them would eventually go on to die. Hope is not secure if you get a few more years on this earth. The power to raise them from the dead and back to life was not the most important lesson to take from the text, nor was it the most hopeful lesson to take from these scriptures. See, all of that was a foretaste of what's to come. The most important thing to take from looking at this man walk into this room and raise this woman from the grave through the power of Jesus is that Jesus has power over nature, power over suffering, power over sin, power over death, and that he will grant us life. The most important lesson to take from this text as you think about the miracles that God is working and you read it is that if God can work these miracles and literally he carries the power over all human circumstances. Then when he tells us that if we submit our lives to him and we trust him by faith and we and we and we and we repent of our sin and we turn to him and we accept his sacrifice on the cross and we believe that he raised from the grave that we shall be saved and inherit eternal life, that when he tells us this, we can believe him. You can trust him. You can rest in him. And so your good works, the good works you perform on a day-to-day, they're meant to be a foretaste. They're meant to point people back to this good God that's preparing eternity for us. Are you tracking with that? They're meant to be, in the good works that are coming your way, they're meant to be small mercy, small reminders that God is still there. And that he's preparing a place for you. And in that place, there will be no suffering. In that place, tears will cease. In that place, justice will stand. In that place, death will be no more. It will be, it has been conquered through Jesus Christ. So let the works that are performed around you and let the works that you perform, let it be foretaste of that which is to come. Amen.